So I think my favorite musician ever is Prince. Uh, I got to see him in 2012. You saw him in 2012. Wow. Yeah, at the United Center in Chicago, like where the Bulls and the Blackhawks played. And he brought out Jennifer Hudson and her voice was just so big, like all the way up to the roof of this arena. It was amazing. Black Card is inspired by my own experiences as a mixed race black person who was playing in punk bands in Richmond, Virginia um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. At the time, the punk scene was very white. That's changed a lot in the last couple of decades. So the idea of trying to kind of figure out my own blackness, my own black identity in this lily white space was, was very complicated. So I wrote the book to share some of those experiences and use it as a chance to kind of explore my identity and get some of the memories and details of playing in punk bands in that era and of Richmond in that era. You know, the city has changed a lot since then to get, get that all down on the page. One of the things that Lucius schools the narrator on is how to say the word M-O-T-H-E-R-F-U-C-K-E-R. And I'm spelling it because there's a chapter, granted it's only a page, but it's devoted solely to the pronunciation of this word. And it is hilarious. Oh yeah, I've got, I've got thoughts about this. If you thought that last answer was in-depth. Warning, this sort of content is questionable. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is lit! Welcome to Season 2 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, Lit listeners. We've got another great episode for you. Chris L. Terry is here to talk about his novel, Black Card, a story that follows a mixed-race punk rock musician and his struggles with identity. We're going to talk race, how to pronounce certain naughty words, hip-hop and punk music, and even Confederate monuments. Good times, y'all. But first, let me introduce Chris L. Terry. As I mentioned, Chris is the author of the novel Black Card, which NPR called hilariously searing enlisted as one of the best books of 2019. Chris's debut novel, Zero Fade, was on Best of 2013 list by Slate and Kirkus Reviews. He is currently editing the anthology Black Punk Now with Afropunk founder James Spooner. Chris spent his late teens and early 20s touring as the vocalist for different Richmond, Virginia punk bands. He has a creative writing MFA from Columbia College, Chicago, and now lives and teaches in Los Angeles. His recent work has appeared in Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, Razor Cake, Very Smart Brothers slash The Root, Catapult, 
and The Land Magazine. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Chris. Thank you. Hi, Christy. How's it going? Doing well, thank you. Glad you could make it. There's a whole lot about punk music and old school soul and funk and even a little Prince in your novel Black Card. And of course, you played in various punk bands in the 2000s. I'm interested in hearing more about your musical proclivities. Let's play a set of five questions. Cool. What music video made the biggest impression on you? I've got Long View by Green Day. So this was the summer of 1994. I was 15 years old. Uh, My family was in the midst of moving from the Boston area to Richmond, Virginia. Um, We were staying for a few days with my aunt in Connecticut, and I was sleeping on the couch in front of the TV, and she had cable. Uh, We didn't, we never had cable like in my parents' houses growing up. So that was like a novelty. And I couldn't sleep, and I was really bummed out, and I was sitting up watching videos. And Longview came on, and it's literally a song about sitting on the couch with nothing to do, like (laughs) wondering where your life is going. And it just like hit me, you know, it was just like this. This is art for me about what I'm doing. Oh, my God. So it really struck me. That's definitely the the biggest effect that a music video has ever had on me. And that was also, you know, it was 1994. This was maybe four months after Kurt Cobain had passed. I was just going to say, yeah, that was going on. Yeah. And I was so I was feeling like a little, as a music fan, a little bit adrift. I loved Nirvana. Yeah. And was kind of looking for that next thing. And this, you could also say, marked the transition where I was like, a fan of hip hop music and, you know, more softer alternative rock, I guess. And like got, took more of my taste, took more of a punk bent. Not long after that, Green Day was like one of many gateway drugs for me into the <laughs> punk world. <laughs> I said, uh- If you could see any band or solo artist, living or dead, in concert, who would it be? The thing I'd really like to see is Sun Ra played at a club in Boston called the Boston Tea Party. Oh, yeah. And my dad, he, my dad is my black parent, and he's from Virginia. He went to college in Boston, and he also got into like the, this was the late 60s, and he got into the rock music of the era and the kind of weird hippie music. And Sun Ra sort of fit under that umbrella. And my dad used to always go to this club called the Boston Tea Party to see whatever other bands. He went to see Sun Ra. And I'd love to be at that gig. A, to see Sun Ra in his, I believe, prime. I think that would be really cool. I think it would also be cool just to see this club that was such a formative rock club in general and for my father, um, who's always kind of encouraged me musically. And I think it'd be really funny to watch my dad reacting to Sun Ra because I know that that's a little out there for his taste. He was like, Sun Ra, that was, that was a little weird. I saw Vanilla Fudge a few weeks later. No, they brought the house down. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So, so, like, watching my dad reacting to Sun Ra would have been humorous. Also, I'd be interested to see the crowd. Um, I'm imagining it's Boston in the 60s. It's probably very white. How are, like, white hipsters reacting to far-out black art in this time? And, you know, is there, like, I'd love to kind of read the room on that. Is there like a level of condescension? Are their minds blown? What is that like? And also even what's it like for my dad being probably among the minority of black people in the room or like a black person and in the minority in the room being around other white people 
in experiencing this. So I just love to kind of take some time with all those errors and hear something off heliocentric worlds live as well, you know? All of that, but also just to party with your dad at that age, just as two dudes hanging out, going to a show. Oh man, I pictured myself as a fly on the wall. How man. wild would that be? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess go, going with him would be something too. I just thought of myself as a spy initially, but yeah, maybe we could hang out. Okay. Question number three, you're in a bar. And you see a rock star sitting in a corner, nursing a drink and reading your book, this book, Black Card. Yeah. Who is it and what do you do? Man, this kind of reminds me of, do you remember Colson Whitehead tweeted a few years ago, I think around when Underground Railroad was his current book. And he was saying that he saw someone on the train reading his book and he wanted to go say hi to them. But then he realized he was wearing the same shirt that he had on in his author photo and he didn't want them to think that he only had one shirt. I remember that tweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Twitter is sometimes good for something. Um, and this is one of those things. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So this question reminds me of that. I guess mm. I'd make sure I didn't have on the same jean jacket that I have on in my author photo. I'm thinking the pop star Halsey or Halsey, H-A-L-S-E-Y. I don't know their music too, too well, but like me, Halsey is a like multiracial black person who maybe looks more white than black. And they're also uh, probably like 15, 20 years younger than me. And what I would love to do is 
ask them, you know, how is the experience for uh, like mixed race black person different in your generation than it is in mine? You know, I'm like one of the younger generation Xers and Halsey is like maybe Gen Z or maybe young, like one of the youngest millennials. Because I get the idea that that experience has changed. You know, there's more multiracial people now than there were 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. So I would just be interested to kind of go right in and chop it up about that. You know, not the lightest conversation to have with a stranger in a bar, but sometimes you just got to go for it. Well, send Halsey a drink first and, you know, you guys get lubed up before you have that conversation. That's the plan. That's the plan. What's on your playlist now? Playlist now. Let's see. Oh, I had my phone. What am I listening to? So every month I make a playlist on Spotify and I listen to that when I'm running or when I cook. So there's a lot of kind of current, like critically acclaimed stuff that I dig, like Sudan Archives or that band Always that has two V's instead of a W. They're kind of shoegazy. This R&B singer I love named Don Richard just did an album with Spencer Zahn and it's kind of like chamber music with her vocals. And there's a like a dancey black punk band called Special Interest I like. That's all like stuff that I read about on Pitchfork. So not the most original, um, but digging a little deeper. Uh, there's a punk band called Linguas Largas, like long tongues. They're from Tucson, Arizona. And it's kind of like desert fried and garagey, but with like really croony vocals. And they just put out a new album and I'm loving it. There's an underground rapper, Open Mike Eagle. Um, I'm really enjoying his new album. And I actually went to see him about a month ago. And he's around my age. It's like, I call it rap dad music. You know, it's got like some middle-aged person concerns in it. And I felt very, <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt very seen. And he also put on an awesome show. Then there's a rapper from Memphis named Duke Deuce, who I like a lot. He kind of sounds like old school, like crunk, get buck type of music from 20 years ago. And it's just a really good time. And it's kind of good natured with a bad attitude. I love asking that question because I get all these varied answers, which means my repertoire gets expanded. There are all these bands that I get exposed to that I, I wouldn't have otherwise. So that's you've just given me a lot to check out. Oh, good, good. Yes. What's your favorite rock novel? So I, I do want to shout out Jeff Jackson. I like both uh, Mira Corpora and Destroy All Monsters. You know, he's just has makes such an uncanny atmosphere. I feel like. And I really like the like the mysterious singer songwriter f- figure that's in Miracle mm-hmm. Cora. I don't, know, and it's kind of the, the way that like a a legend can maybe build around a figure who's otherwise kind of mysterious. It reminds me of a little bit of Will Oldham, the singer songwriter. And I like in, in Monsters. I like how it sits with that sort of community aspect of going to concerts. You know, that's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a major pastime for a lot of people. It's their lifeline. Yep. And it hurts to have that taken away. Um, so it was interesting to read Monsters, and then you know have C-O-V-I-D kick in not too long later and be like, this is, this feels kind of similar. But uh, another book I wanted to shout out is one that I read. It's a YA book that I read. It's the book was published in 89 and I probably read it a couple years later. It's called the band never dances by JD Landis. And it's about a young woman, like a teenager who is mourning the suicide of one of her siblings and ends up joining a rock band that goes on to like some degree of success. 
And I remember, you know, I was always a music lover and like wanted to be in bands even when I was a preteen. And this is the first look I got at kind of the politics inside of a band about like, you know, the dynamics of the people in the band and also like the business of being a kind of scrappy rock band. Yeah. And I can also remember some of the descriptions from that book, even decades later. Um, Like I remember there's a scene where she tries acid. And like she's f- kind of following the trails of people's cigarettes um, <laughs> in the scene, which probably wouldn't happen in YA now, but I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> probably not, I'm guessing. And then they also they had like their A and R guy or some exec, exec at the record company when the band was having trouble, like they got stressed out and the exec went bald. And then in the end, they like were successful and their hair grew back. And I remember it being described as looking like a sunflower. And you know, as somebody with kind of like puffy lighter colored hair that really stuck with me. <laughs> so these are, you know, lines of description that I read over 30 years ago that I still remember. And while I was thinking about this, I, the book's out of print, but I found a paperback copy online. I ordered it. So I'm going to dive back in and I hope it's not like super racist or something weird like that. Like everything else from my youth. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned Jeff. I was going to mention Jeff. I was going to give him a shout out and just say thank you, Jeff, for steering me in your direction because he highly recommended Black Card and and said you really should have him on. It's just a great book and I'm I'm so glad I got the chance to read it. I love Black Card. It's just a fantastic book. So shout out to Jeff. Thank you very much for bringing Chris into my orbit. On that note, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with Chris L. Terry. This is Chris L. Terry, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. And we're back with Chris L. Terry, author of Black Card. So before we jump into your novel, I think it would be helpful for listeners to hear a little bit about your background because it factors into the book. Yeah. um, Black Card is inspired by my own experiences as a mixed-race Black person um, who was playing in punk bands in Richmond, Virginia. Um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. At the time, the punk scene was very white. That's changed a lot in the last couple of decades. So the idea of trying to kind of figure out my own blackness, my own black identity in this lily white space was, was very complicated. So I wrote the book to share some of those experiences and use it as a chance to kind of explore my identity and get some of the memories and details of playing in punk bands in that era and of Richmond in that era, you know, the city has changed a lot since then to get, get that all down on the page. You know, there are a million New York novels, but not a lot of Richmond, Virginia ones. Right. This was interesting to me. You were born in March of 79, two months after the first rap record was ever released. And we're talking about Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Mm -hmm. Gang, which I remember well and used to try and sing along with. You've kind of grown up with rap. Yeah, yeah. Um, me and rap records are about the same age. And if, well, if, if the camera, if my laptop was pointed maybe, oops, about 45 degrees in another direction, you'd see I have a bunch of rap records not too far from here. Okay. So as, like a, as a music lover, I, I love that I'm about as old as hip hop's public life. You know? Right. <laughs> okay. And just to establish 
Your dad is the black parent, like you said earlier. Your mom is Irish American. This was interesting to me too. She's a librarian, but she makes these psychedelic quilts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mom is uh, from from the Boston area and she's a children's librarian who especially specializes in pre-literacy work. So like um, parent baby story times, things like that. And yeah, she's a also worked in a quilting shop for a long time and sometimes she'll freehand quilts and also just follows different patterns and even, you know, gets a little jazzy with the color patterns. And a lot of them are really trippy looking. My parents are both kind of <laughs> old, like they both have some hippie tendencies, you know? I was picking up on that. Yeah. No, it's, it's very cool that they, that they both encouraged your creative streak. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm very happy. I think I'm pretty stubborn and hardheaded. And I think pretty early on, they're like, you're, you're a creative type and you're probably not going to, that's what you're going to feel driven to do. And we don't want to, Yeah. we want to encourage you to do that because you're probably not going to be a doctor. We can't force you into that or anything, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so much overlap between your real life and what happens in Black Card. Did you consider just writing a memoir? How did it become a novel? I mean, the early draft was writing down a lot of memories. First draft was just lots of lists of things, lots of different, different memories. And then, you know, the second and third drafts were me you know, I, I wanted to fictionalize it uh, just to have some distance. I didn't also didn't want to like blast anybody in particular. So, you know, I could make, I could fictionalize by making kind of composite characters, you know, like the front man, the indie rock front man who doesn't want to act like he wants to be a rock star, even though he like passive aggressively, extremely very much on the inside wants to be famous, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, the drummer who's in a million bands is another kind of archetype. And I could think of, you know, four or five people like that. And I didn't want one of those four or five people to pick it up and be like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> why are you, <laughs> why, why are you, why, I didn't, why are you talking about me in this book? I didn't do nothing to you, you know? Chris, you know, there, there's a chapter on guys, people, people that you don't want in your band. And you know, <laughs> you know, somebody's looking at that who's been in your band and gone, oh shit, that's me. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I still talk to my old bandmates. And also it says fiction on the spine of the book and that's my out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, the street names are real. The feelings are real. Other things are exaggerated or turned into composites. And then, you know, the book has a speculative element as well that I think holds together the narrative. And obviously, you know, a speculative memoir, I'm sure that could be done or has been done, um, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have some, some freedom from being tied to my own story. You know, and there's there's I mean, some of the, the plot points also are, are fictionalized as well. Big time. You have a little sister. Yeah. Were you able to talk to each other about racial identity when you were growing up? Was was she somebody that you could share these feelings with? Did you get a sense that she was struggling with the same kind of issues that you were? By the time I started thinking about it, I'd kind of checked out of the family. You know, I was like, I'm three and a half years older than my sister. It's funny to say little sister because she's 40 now <laughs> and probably has her act together more than I do. So I seem like the younger sibling a lot. But in, in a word, no, like we both had the experience of living in the Boston area and a primarily white area um, and then moving to Richmond, which at the time at least was a very black city and we were going to black schools. So it was our first time being around like a lot of black people who weren't in our family. Right. And I remember, you know, talking about that experience a little bit too and trying to figure out where, where we fit in because like, to be blunt, like we've been kind of socialized white. And so we'd missed out on a lot of like, what you could think of as like quintessential culturally black experiences growing up. So I remember us both going through that together a little bit at the time, but we didn't really start talking about it until we were adults. I got out of Richmond right around when I turned 25. 
And my sister had been living up around New York City for a few years by then. I moved to New York and we spent a lot of time together and we're both at a point where we were like thinking about that more and talking about that more. So it's something that we've been able to share as adults, but as kids, not so much. Also, she's darker than me. So I think like she is more likely to present as black than I am. Ironically, like I have tighter, curlier hair than she does. So I remember there are times where <laughs> like people don't always know we're related. Um, and I, sometimes it's questions like, why is that black girl your sister? Or people think that we're dating or something, which is, you know, <laughs> obviously weird. But it's also, you know, to me, at least like we look really similar. We have the same face. We have a really same similar manner of speech. So we have had some slightly different experiences. There's some tough subjects that the novel addresses and some of it disturbing. Like there are references to the fraught relationship Black Americans have had and continue to have with the police. Our Lord, grant us good in this world and good in the life to come keep us safe from the torment of the fire as we keep our heads up high and scream for justice. Ferguson, rest in peace Mike Brown and all the young soldiers out there. The narrator alludes to his parents having had the talk with him about what to do if a cop approaches him, something that the parents of, of white kids just don't have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Did your parents have that talk with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm pale. And so I had the easy, I, I could kind of hide behind some privilege. And so my dad'd be like, you know, you're going to get signaled out or singled out because you're black. And I'm like, well, but I look kind of white, dad. Like, are you sure? There's sometimes if something bad happens to you as a black person or something uncomfortable happens, there's the question of like, did this happen because I'm black or did this just happen because for some other reason? So there were a lot of kind of, there were a few like plausible deniability type of situations where it's like, this could have been racial, but it might not have been. So yeah, I mean, we definitely, we definitely had those talks. And when I was a little younger, like late middle school, early high school, I was like into skateboarding and stuff, which involves like making noise in public and trespassing and being kind of a nuisance. And I had some like tough run-ins with the police. And there also, I was also like bigger than a lot of my friends. I was, I hit six feet tall when I was maybe 14. Oh, wow. I had a deep voice. Yeah, I stopped growing also. So I'm still six feet tall, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) so I also was like, bigger and maybe older seeming and therefore could be perceived as a threat. And it's once again, it's like, did this happen because I'm black or because I'm a 14 year old who looks like a 19 year old, you know? Yeah. So it definitely was a conversation to be had, but then, you know, we had that conversation and then I put something about this in the book. Also, there's a scene where the main character goes to the grocery store with his pop and his dad is like buying alcohol for himself. And the cashier thinks that the dad is buying the booze for the kid. Like that, yeah. that happened to us. So, you know, it's one time it's like people don't believe this black guy is my dad, but also I'm being treated differently because I'm black. And it's kind of finding the right balance between those two things or knowing when something is happening for what reason. It can be hard. There's also a lot of humor in the book. So you've got these tough subjects, but there's, it, the book is really funny. Thank you. Especially when you address Black stereotypes. Take the you look like game chapter. 
People are routinely trying to guess what the narrator's ethnicity is, which leads to what he calls the you look like game, where they explain his existence to themselves by telling them he looks like somebody else. And some examples are Kid from Kid and Play, Justin Timberlake, Lenny Kravitz, and then this is my favorite. This light-skinned cat used to work with my sister at the supermarket. <laughs> I gather this is something that you have gone through. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, you know, if they see something that they can't entirely explain, they're going to want context, right? And so maybe I, they saw another light-skinned guy one time and they're like, oh, okay, so you remind me of him. <laughs> Do y'all know each other? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. There's two sides to that. One is that this is some tragic mulatto stuff. It's like, do you fully fit in somewhere? But I fit in a little bit in a lot of places. I'll tell you that much. You know? Yes. Yes. So that's, that's the upside to that. And, you know, that means I've been uh, Jewish. I've been um, from Argentina. I've been Puerto Rican. You know, I, I've been I've been read in a lot of different ways, which is interesting. It's kind of made me a reactive person. You know, I want to figure out how I'm being seen. Um, and that might dictate the way that I'm, I move forward in a situation, you know? I love this expression that I've, I've heard you use, going incognito, <laughs> to kind of describe how, you know, when people don't quite know where to place you when you're going incognito. <laughs> Thank you. I got that. Uh, I stole that from the rapper Ludacris, his first album. He did like an independent album called Incognito. Um, ah, he's a just full okay. 100% black person as far as I know. But I think he like looked like an undercover agent on the cover of the album or something. It was hilarious. <laughs> But I was like, I like that. I like that for being like a, or an undercover brother, like the, the comedy movie from 20 years ago. They want to know why I hit like that, spit like that, shit like that. Maybe because I get like that, kick like that, rip like that. They want to know why I rhyme like that, shine like that, climb like that. Yeah, but being incognito, like people can't always tell that you're black. You're kind of slipping in under the gate or something. There's also some guilt and complexity of identifying white or black. Like you write, since being mistaken for white erases half of me and happens so often that I think I've failed at blackness, I cherish being called black. Still, it also makes me feel like I have to reject my white side. That's why I feel guilty for loving punk rock. You know, the whole situation with the game is funny, but the issue is really complex and serious and, and poignant at times. I do feel like a lot of this has changed. So Black Card is set in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's set in maybe 02. James Spooner made the documentary Afropunk that came out in 2003. Um, and that kind of kicked off a movement uh, and a network of Black punk rockers. So this kind of, this thing that seemed like it was just white shit just a few years before that started to change. Also, in the decades since, the punk scene has really diversified in terms of not just race, but also like gender and sexuality and lots of other things. So it's been really cool. I still am involved in the punk world, not to the extent that I was when I was younger, but um, it's been really, really nice to watch it become maybe a more open, a more welcoming place or a more diverse place since then. So part of writing Blackheart was just getting this experience down so I could kind of remember that as I watch punk evolve, and I watch as I watch the world evolve, I currently live in Southern California, and there it's a very racially diverse. There are a lot of people who kind of look like me here, and I like that. I think that's very comfortable. And I think California has always 
had a lot of multiracial people. I remember coming here for the first time on tour with my band in the early 2000s and having a similar feeling. I went back to Richmond and was like, mom, dad, I just went somewhere where people look like me. I need to get out of here. (laughs) Knowing that there was someplace out there that felt like it could be for me was big because I didn't feel like that in the South or in the Boston area. So I don't know if my view is a little bit skewed by living in Southern California. I'm sure that if I went to like Chicken Switch, Iowa, the scene might still be pretty white, you know? Speaking of the interesting phrase going incognito, there's a lot in the novel about language, how to say certain words, what words aren't appropriate for, say, white people to say, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I think this is very timely given the current kind of council culture and people's fears of saying the wrong thing and catching hell for it. I enjoyed your conversation with Brad Listy on this podcast, Other People, about this very thing. You said, and I agree with you, that you think a lot of the static about language is coming from folks who've had the privilege of not having had to think about this sort of thing before. And some of those same folks are annoyed at the inconvenience of having to think about it now. What's a positive aspect of language being under the microscope right now? You know, you get your brain in your mouth, and there isn't a whole lot of space between it. But it's good if you can take a little bit of time to slow that trip uh, that the words might take from your brain to coming out your mouth. So hopefully it gets people to kind of think and just consider a little bit more in general. Or it gets people to, you know, react to that negatively and show their asses a little bit faster so that, so that <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I know where I stand and how I feel about them a little bit quicker. But you know, if somebody is making quote unquote cancel culture their cause, they're probably going to be talking about that pretty fast. They're probably going to be pushing, trying to push boundaries and see what they can get away with pretty quickly. And all those things will send up some pretty obvious red flags for me, you know, and for anybody else who's trying to be a more thoughtful or equitable person. The narrator in Black Card, who is unnamed, because, and this is just my theory, he's trying to figure out his identity. But he has a friend Mm -hmm. named Lucius who shows up after the narrator and his family moved to Richmond, Virginia, where he finds himself in a much blacker world than the one he left. And Lucius acts as his guide for how to be black. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about him because I don't want to give too much away, but he is a fascinating character. Thank you. He says to, Lucius says to the narrator, here's a quote, you were black by default growing up around those white folks in the suburbs, but this move changed a few things. You finally got around us brothers and realized them rap tapes didn't make you black. So one of the things that Lucius schools the narrator on is how to say the word M-O-T-H-E-R-F-U-C-K-E-R. And I'm spelling it because there's a chapter, granted it's only a page, but it's devoted solely to the pronunciation of this word. And it is hilarious. So before we talk about how Lucius says black people should pronounce that word, let's hear a couple of examples. I'm going to play clips of two different, very prominent black men using the word, and you tell me which, according to Lucius, is the correct pronunciation. Here's Samuel L. Jackson. Racist motherfucker. 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 And here is Prince from A Scene in Purple Rain. Answer me, motherfucker! I knew Sam Jackson was going to be on the list. He says motherfucker better than anybody. It's true. And it's varied too. So a lot of black card is, you know, it it pushes against the idea of people within the black community policing blackness and making other black people feel like they're not black enough. And I think Lucius, Lucius's ideas and views about this even evolve a bit over the book. He's not on the narrator's ass as much 
by the end of the story for a variety of reasons. But I think the narrator and his like taste in punk music and rock music has rubbed off on Lucius a little bit too. So he's maybe not as not as much of a hard ass about you know about yeah. if the, the narrator is acting black enough. So I'm gonna I'm gonna step back from judging who who's who's saying MF best. And I'm going to say instead that as long it needs to have some sauce on it, that sauce can <laughs> it can have different flavors. It can be salty, it can be sweet, it can be spicy, and there can be a lot of it, or there can be a little bit of it. And sometimes the same person is going to be have a different type of sauce and a different size spoon as well. And I think we heard that right there with Prince and with Sam Jackson. That was a very diplomatic answer. Thank you. Very diplomatic response to all that. So they both come out winners. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the unnamed narrator, that was a tribute to Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Ah, um, uh, yes. So yes. that book, you know, it's about a person who loses all sense of himself because he's constantly subjected to other people's interpretations of him and expectations for him as a, as a black person. And I was, you know, one of the, I had that book in mind a lot because I'm essentially was essentially exploring the same topic like for a mixed race black person and adding that extra layer of multiracial identity into there. So I thought it would be cool to do that as a little tribute to Ralph Ellison. I would be remiss in not bringing up the elephant in the cyber room with regard to language, the sure. N-word. Okay. Lucius also schools the narrator on how to say that word. Right, he right. tells him you have to say it with an A at the end. He also says that only black people get to use it at all. Okay, we know the ugly history of that word, how white people used it to wield power over African Americans. It is an ugly history. I think it's an ugly present as well. I mean, my, you know, my understanding is that it's kind of a, it's a reclamation and it's, you know, being taken and flipped and turned into something beautiful that black people can use to kind of share something and to uplift each other after so many other things have been taken. And, you know, we, I mean, you get the same thing with, that's like the origin of hip hop music too. It's like taking other cast off sounds and making something new and beautiful out of them soul food. It was table scraps that people, that slaves got from the people who owned them and turned that into delicious cuisine. So I think it's, it's something else that's in that tradition. And uh, that was a connection. I don't think this is a fair, like blanket, full connection to make, but I found that to be something I found to be appealing about punk rock as well, which was like doing the most with the least. Um, and I feel like there's echoes of that in some of the other stuff I just mentioned, like soul food and hip hop, like working with what you got. So that was something that very much touched me about the punk rock world um, when I was a teenager, when I was you know, still asking myself a lot of questions about my racial identity. And also when like, I was, my family was having a lot of money problems and I was trying to figure out how to be too small to fail, I guess, instead of too big to fail, you know, how to succeed okay. and feel, feel successful in life without materialism basically. In mentioning the N-word, I was thinking of this quote from the book, when the narrator thinks, I love hip-hop because it's courage and bluster in the face of a world it can't control. Try explaining that to a white person who is hung up on the lyrics about guns and bitches, and I would, this is out of the quote, but I would throw the N-word in there too. And back to the quote, I don't love those lyrics either and really had to think it through, but decided that the offensive side of rap is a symptom of the disease we got from white people. Hip hop in your head is a gun in your pocket. It makes you feel like no one can fuck with you. And I needed that right then. I found that to be a really interesting, apt 
and profound description of, of why hip hop with all of those layers is important to kids, important to people. Thank you. I, I agree with everything. I, I agree with everything I said in my book. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that it's, it is, you know, it can, it can make you feel brash and courageous at a time when the world wants, you know, in a world that wants you to feel weak. It can even throw certain stereotypes back in the, fa- back in the faces of people who perpetuate them or who try to force them onto you. Fine. You think I'm like this? That I am even more so than you thought. This is slightly off topic, but I was thinking about this joke today. I don't remember why there's a Eddie Murphy joke, and I know that that's kind of can be a red flag. <laughs> but he was saying like, yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, we are, you could say it, we're, we're, we're lazy and we're shiftless and we're criminals. But if you're going to say those things, then we also have big dicks. Like if, if, if you, <laughs> um, so it's wow. kind of like, okay, you got to let us have all the stereotypes. And like I said, you play with those stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's shift gears here. I mentioned in the intro that we were going to talk about Confederate monuments, statues, flags, all that stuff. Sure. The narrator moves with his family to Richmond, Virginia when he's 15 after his dad loses his job and they stay with his dad's parents. You write about the many Confederate statues of people like Robert E. Lee on Monument Avenue in Richmond. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've been to Richmond and and I was a child when I went, so I don't recall that. Do you know what Monument Avenue looks like now, all these years after the novel takes place? Do I ever? Yeah, so that, that is, this is, you know, another autobiographical aspect of this novel. When I was in high school, we got an apartment around the corner from Robert E. Lee, the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond on Monument Ave. So you took a left off my parents' block, you saw Lee's horse's ass. First thing you saw. Uh, the racism in the Boston area was often a little bit more subtle than that. So it was a real, real slap in the face. And it really sure. kind of changed the way I thought about who I was and how the world saw me. But this was the mid-1990s. So um, when George Floyd got murdered by the police and there was a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests and activism going on in the summer of 2020, those statues started to come down in Richmond. They'd been up, you know, I think it's like over 100 years, most of them. So there's a street in Richmond called Monument Ave, and it has, or it had, I want to say four or five monuments to Confederates, to slave owners, to people who fought to start a country um, where they could still own slaves. And those came down. Over the holidays in 2020, uh, my family, my family being my wife and our kid and I, we went to visit Richmond. My wife has some family there still. And we actually ended up staying not too far from there. So one of our first days in town, I got to take a jog. I'm an avid runner. And, uh, Go out, I went up Monument Ave and just visited all the places, all the, all the monuments, which has all been graffitied up. And Lee, you know, my old nemesis, my old bully, had been turned into this kind of like people's autonomous zone. It had all this, um, you know, anti-cop, pro-black graffiti on it. People were like hanging out, kicking a soccer ball around. Like there was like a community garden in there and just this kind of threatening 
negative space got turned into something positive by the community. Since then, I believe like the statue has actually come down, but the pedestal is still there. And I don't know exactly where it's at right now. I haven't been back to Richmond in a year or two. But So most of them are down? I think they're all down now. It's just like the... Oh, you know what it was? I think... I think that the other ones by 2020, by Christmas 2020, when we were in town, they'd all come down except for Lee. And Lee had like some slightly, someone had like, there was slightly different proprietorship over that statue. And so there was some technical reason why it had to stay up for longer. Okay. But they're all, they're all down now. I'm not sure just what they're doing with the space. I haven't been monitoring that story too, too closely in the last year or so. When I read that description of that street in Black Card, I couldn't help thinking of what happened in Charlottesville. Just it, That's like an hour's drive away from Richmond. Back in 2017, with the violent white nationalist rally and Donald Trump's infamous good people on both sides comment afterwards, because he was, in effect, assigning a moral equivalence between people spreading hate and people standing up against it. Mm -hmm. And so people listening, before anybody jumps on me for leaving out the full quote in context, since Trump did add that he wasn't talking about white nationalists and white supremacists who he said should be condemned, I want to add that that doesn't get him off the hook. I mean, if you're out there protesting the removal of Confederate statues, that's a problem. What are your values? If you're using the it's changing history or erasing history bullshit rationale for not removing those monuments, that's a problem. And it reminds me of this quote in Black Card from the chapter on people who are racist. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't recall the exact quote right now. But basically, the narrator is saying that racism doesn't come in just one size. It's more than just the extreme examples of Nazis and Klansmen and people who say they hate black people. So talk more about the idea of racism being on this sort of spectrum, kind of like autism. It's just, it's on a spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Right. I mean, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of of racism is subtler than like a person in a Klan hood saying the N-word and burning a cross. Um, And that means it's harder to address. And I, I don't I don't think I have anything too, too new to say on that topic. I think that's just a, tr- a truth. And hopefully people can accept that, that, you know, even the stuff that's subtler racism is still racism. And I have a proposal. And that is that I want, I don't know if it's a proposal, because I don't know if it's as easy as just snapping your fingers and having it done. But like, I wish people would take some of the thorns out of the word racism. I wish that being accused of racism wasn't seen as such a serious thing. Because then it would be easier to talk about some of the subtler forms of racism. Yes. You know, it's kind of like, okay, this is this thing where you just walked up and touched my hair. That was racist. Obviously, you didn't burn a cross on my lawn. It's different. I don't feel threatened in the same way. But it's still on that continuum, on that spectrum, like you were talking about, Christy. And, you know, I, th- I think the connection should be recognized between those bigger things. But it should be understood that there are like, subtler forms of racism that don't deserve the same level of like outrage and horror, but still need to be accepted for what they are and, you know, resisted and worked on Mm -hmm. and worked to be changed. Right. And those are the people that you can probably work with because they might not even understand that what they're doing or saying is offensive. It's it's the people burning the crosses might not get too far with them. That might be a lost cause. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that often, you know, the people that are doing the more subtle stuff might be a little bit more on the more sensitive side. So they also would react a little bit worse to someone being like, that was racist. or like, you're equating me to a Klansman or whatever. I wish that more people, the folks running around going, oh, you're erasing history. And I've heard this personally. 
could realize that most of these Confederate monuments were not built soon after the Civil War. Yeah. I mean, these came up to push back against uh, the progress, the racial progress during Reconstruction and then during the Civil Rights periods. These were meant to intimidate. So there's a lot of that going on that people don't either understand, know, or, or won't admit. Okay, on to something cheerier, but still relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about music, because it's sure. such a big part of the novel, and it's a big part of your history. I'll start with hip-hop and rap. Just for clarity's sake, what's the difference between hip-hop and rap? I personally don't differentiate. Some people will say that hip-hop is more of like the general culture, and rap is the actual music. Okay. I just, I use them interchangeably. I think rap is easier to say and I like how it sounds. So I usually just say rap. Also for me, hip hop has kind of like extremely like self-serious and dry connotations. If I say conservative, it's going to sound like I'm talking about, you know, uh, Jeff Sessions or something. Um, But by conservative, I mean the type of people, I think in rap music, rap is an irreverent art form that is constantly developing and there are people who are like, but well, we have to make sure that we stay true to our roots and rap needs to, hip hop needs to be breakdancing and it needs to be really intricate rhymes. And it's like, you are a bore that doesn't want to let things change and grow. And I always react poorly to that instinct in other people. So I associate hip hop with this sort of stodginess. And I don't, I don't think that's, that's, that's personal. I don't know if everyone else feels that way. Other people might feel very differently, but yeah, so Long story short, a lot of people would say that rap is the music, hip hop is the music and the, the culture. culture. It. Okay. So I used to ask authors what the first record they remember getting was. And the narrator in Black Card's first record is Run DMC's Raising Hell. And the story of how he got that record is pretty much what happened with you. Your dad did go out and buy that album after you expressed interest in Run DMC. And that was your first album. Yeah. But that wasn't your first recording. A tape precedes the first album. You dug the Fat Boys, who you'd seen on the TV show Square One when you were I think eight years old. Something like that. Third grade. Yeah. Okay. And your dad took you to a record store in Boston and bought you the tape. The fat boys are back. That's right. So there's so many musical firsts between you and your dad. Do you still have the album and the tape? I still have the album. I have like a shoebox with a few tapes in it that I saved um, that are just kind of like preserved and probably completely decayed on the inside. I think I still have that <laughs> fat boys tape. I'm sentimental enough that I'm pretty sure I would have kept that. But I definitely still have the record. I actually, my kid heard, I think he heard It's Tricky by Run DMC in a movie or something recently. My kid is eight, so the same age I was. And he's interested in music because it's just constantly in the air in our house. And so I, it was cool to tell him, like, this is the first record I got. Here's my copy. Yeah. Well, here's a story that I found interesting. When you were a kid, you babysat to earn money to buy records. Mm-hmm. And you were really serious about music, a purist about rap. In fact, when you were 11, you blew a babysitting gig because you were such a purist. You want to tell me about that story? 
Sure, sure. So this was still in the Boston area, um, and this would have been circa 1990. And it's funny to think about this even being a debate now that rap is like probably the most popular music in the country. Um, but at the time, there was you know a strong faction of people in the rap world or the hip hop world that were like, we don't want it to cross over. We don't want to lose rap music the same way that we lost rock and roll. We don't want it to basically get gentrified, right, or colonized. So anything that's on the radio is like some sellout shit, and rap needs to be just for us and be underground and only talk about, you know, thing, the things we wanted to talk about. If you're talking about anything that's too light, like too light of a topic, that's a sellout, it's for too many people. And I subscribed to that line of thought as a serious-minded preteen who had a couple public enemy tapes and the X-Clan and other kind of more Afrocentric rap at home and some NWA even. Yeah. I was on a pretty long leash about the pop culture I was allowed to check out. So I went to go interview for like a babysitting gig, basically. We, I put like a, there was a newsletter at my grade school and I put an ad for like baby, as a babysitter in there and a family we didn't know called me. My mom took me over there and I was talking to the, to the, that family's mom and she had two kids, you know, who were, who were younger and it was going okay, but it was, it was sometimes a little awkward. And I remember kind of responding to that awkwardness. Uh, this was my first job interview ever. Once again, I was like 11, so go easy on me. <laughs> okay. But she's, and somehow it came up that like, maybe my mom mentioned that I liked rap music. I think she was asking like what I liked. And I was just like, you know, I like music. And my mom mentioned I like rap music. And the mom's, and the mom that I was interviewing with was like, hey, oh, do you like MC Hammer? And I'm like, no, he's a sellout. <laughs> and that just got real awkward. And that kind of, the interview ended shortly after that. And I never got called back. Oh, dear. So I've, yeah, I guess I offended some MC Hammer fans and, you know, lost out on 30 or 40 bucks. Um, well, I know you're just sick about it. Oh, it was, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, I mean, MC Hammer was pretty good. <laughs> I would probably have more, more fun if Can't Touch Us came on at a party than if, like, Funkin' Lesson by the X-Clan came on. That's not true. I'd probably like that, too. But anyway. <laughs> Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. My, 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 my music hits me so hard. Makes me say, oh my Lord, thank you for blessing me. When I'm mine too rhyme and too hype, it feels good. When you know you're down. A super dope homeboy from the Oak Town and I'm known as such. And this is a Yeah, that song's right up there with Baby Got Back, which makes an appearance in the novel too. In the This is true. Very karaoke funny kind of scene. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay, switching to punk, the narrator in Black Card gets heavily into punk and tours yeah. with his band Paper Fire mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, which is something you did too, albeit your bands had different names like Flesh Eating Creeps and Light the Fuse and Run. In the book, you write that there's a huge gap between what people think touring is like and the reality. What was the reality like as you experienced it? Tedious. Squalor, <laughs> you know, you, so if you're, if you're in like a smaller time punk band, Light the Fuse and Run was my more successful band. And like our average gig, even on tour, we were still playing to like under a hundred people, maybe at a house party or like an anarchist bookstore or a small club. So it's kind of like you drive to your next gig, which is quite possibly like four to six hours away. So you're sitting in a rundown van with like, four or five other smelly, angry young men, some of whom are chain smoking. You get to the gig and you load in, uh, ideally like 
around what I think of now as dinner time because I'm middle aged. But you know, you load in around like four or five, and they have you sound check. And then there's like a couple hours where you're just like killing time until the show starts. And there's the anxiety and the excitement that leads up to a show of being like, is anyone going to come? Are we going to suck? How is tonight going to be? Because it's kind of beyond your control, you know? And so then maybe that's time you spend pacing around, exploring the neighborhood, or you just spend drinking. (laughs) Then you play a gig. No, you still haven't had dinner probably. And you're at the gig until, you know, midnight or something. And there's a lot of downtime even during that. And it's an overstimulating environment, but there's loud music and you're meeting a lot of new people. So there's probably more drinking and drugging going on. And then you end up going to bed in the middle of the night and probably sleeping on somebody's floor or maybe sleeping in the van or maybe sharing a hotel room with those same guys that you were sharing the van with as well. So it's just kind of like bad sleep, not a, not a lot of time to yourself in this weird mix of kind of hurry up and wait of yeah sitting around trying to kill time. I would read a lot of books. Um, once I got a cell phone, I could call home, but I didn't have a cell phone until 2003. So, I, and I've been going on tours for like four or five years before that. So I was also kind of feeling disconnected from home, which is sometimes really nice. I wanted out of Richmond, Virginia for a long time before I left, but there were also, you know, if I was dating somebody back home, I'd miss them. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot I could do about that. I want to say the good part though, too, because I've just been shitting on it for the last couple of minutes. I'm also <laughs> like almost nine out of 10 people that I meet. Um, if they grew up in the U.S., I've probably like played music in their hometown. I've seen the whole country. I got to like do go to the Grand Canyon when I was 23 with my bandmates mm. and like sleep there, and you know do cool weird stuff with locals, like break into a swimming hole that I never would have known about before, or, like jump off and go swimming in a rock quarry. A lot of swimming, especially on these summer tours, is it's like a way to also get in a bath. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I've, I've also, I'm like, I, I was a very well-traveled person by the time I was like 24. Let's hear a song from Light the Fuse and Run. This is I Think They Try from the 2002 album All Your Bass Are Belong to Us. This is a dead horse. d I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. So you can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw at you. First one, punk bands, Fugazi, Planes Mistaken for Stars, or Gloss. Oh, man. Um, I wish I'd seen Gloss. I've seen the other two. Fugazi, easy. That's one of the first punk bands I got into, and their music's... It still sounds fresh today. I put on repeater a couple of years ago when I was driving and was struck that just like at any given moment, every instrument is doing something interesting. That said, like gloss gets me amped. I listen to them pretty regularly and planes mistaken for stars. I saw they actually played an awesome basement in Richmond when I was maybe 21. I remember showing up a little bit late and like their set. I like went outside partway through their set, maybe to, I don't know, just to get away for a minute and like the singer busted out of this basement door into the alley um <laughs> and was like still singing at the end of the song as the set ended and it was just awesome chaos wow um, it was one of the really coolest like show memories that actually inspired a scene in black card where there's like a younger band who's playing and the singer goes out a window or something 
I just like that idea of like having a kind of disembodied voice inside while the, the singer is in another location. So yeah, Fugazi though. Music formats. There's an interesting exchange between the black card narrator and Lucius about records versus CDs, in which Lucius mm-hmm. asks the narrator why he's always playing records instead of CDs. And the narrator says records are cool and cheap. Lucius thinks they're old fashioned, which hurts my soul. <laughs> records are not cheap anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But which is it for you personally, CDs or vinyl? Um, I, I'm pretty much all vinyl and streaming. I have like a book of CDs. But that, those CDs kind of span like a 10-ish year period in my life. Yeah, I, I like records. I still have a bunch of cassette tapes from way back. Yeah. And I used to make mixtapes. And I know that you used to make mixtapes too, but you would have rap on one side and punk on the other because you couldn't figure out how to merge the two styles together. Yeah. That was some in- internalized self-hatred, I think. Gotcha. You know? Feeling like the, the rap and the rock had to be separate. Yeah. Um, you know, you can put rap and rock together in ways that don't sound great, Limp Bizkit. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, that's something I still like doing when I'm making like a playlist every month is just finding ways that songs can kind of segue into one another, especially of different genres. Yeah. So maybe that's some multiracial stuff. Okay. Here's another one. And this one's about Prince. Ooh. The narrator of Black Card listens to Prince throughout the novel, and his dad is a big fan. Which of these three Prince songs would you choose if you could only choose one? If I Was Your Girlfriend, When Doves Cry, She's Always in My Hair. When Doves Cry is my favorite song ever. I have a When Doves Cry tattoo. I'm going to have to go with that. If I was your girlfriend, if, you know, if I was picking like getting all high fidelity and choosing like my five favorite Prince songs, uh, girlfriend would be in there for sure. That's yeah, on your large hearted boy playlist. Oh, girlfriend is that one. Yeah. Okay. I think I might've been mixing it up a little bit. Yeah. So something that's, that is, you know, a known song, but not as known as when doves cry, which is such a blockbuster. That's just so amazing. I mean, just the fact that they took the bass off on that. Just, and speaking, <laughs> speaking of bass, the narrator in Black Car plays bass, and so I figured this category was a must. Bass lines and songs. Curtis Mayfield, mm. Pusher Man. James Brown, yeah. Cold Sweat. And here's a wild card, ha ha ha. Queen and David Bowie, Under Pressure. Oh, that, that's a hard bass line right there. I'm going to say Pusher Man. That one just gets in my head I knew you would. And I've also heard Under Pressure a lot. My kid likes that song. I love that song. Here's the last one. Now think hard about this. This is really important. Okay, okay, okay. Guitarist. You ready? Yes. Jimmy Page. Trash. Jimmy Page. Trash. Or Jimmy Page. Fucking hate Led Zeppelin. All right, I'm deleting this whole entire interview. (laughs) (laughs) Their drummer was good. (laughs) Yeah, John Barnum was amazing. Absolutely. All right, well, that's legit. That's your feeling. Okay. I tried. I've made many good faith efforts to like Led Zeppelin, and I just don't like it. That's fair. All right. That was my last segment to get to the end of the interview. I don't want to end on that. Jesus. 
I was just the next thing was going to be well. What have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about? Oh, so I'm, I've been I'm learning how to play a whole lot of love on the guitar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do I have going on? Um, I, me, and James Spooner are co-editing an anthology called Black Punk Now. That is fiction, uh, nonfiction, both narrative and reporting, plus graphic storytelling, meaning like comics, all by and about Black punk rockers. Um, we just turned in the manuscript about two weeks ago. So it's starting to be designed and everything. Soft Skull Press is planning to publish it this fall. We've got um, some kind of well-known like black writers. Hanif Abdurraqib is in there. Uh, Brontez Purnell. And also some people who are kind of from like the zine scene, like Golden Collier. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're putting them in a book, uh, which has been really cool. And also just people who are kind of active in, in the punk world. Like there's a roundtable discussion among all of the like women and non-binary people who run different black and round, brown punk festivals throughout the U.S. Um, we have kind of a variety of stuff. Soft Skull asked if we could define black punk with this book, and we didn't feel like there was just one specific answer. So we wanted to give as many different, disparate ideas just to kind of create this holistic whole and to give readers as many options as possible. Because some of this book was a reaction to not feeling like there, like there were a lot of resources for black punks when when I was younger, you know, you could be bad brains or you could be white and bad brains are good, but that's not the only way to be black and punk. So black punk now out supposedly October, I'll be, that's always subject to change, but we're on track. I also just um, feel like I'm done with my third novel. It's as good as I'm going to make it. Um, so it needs professional help. I sent it to my agent. Um, I wrote a horror novel about gentrification. It's like a racist haunted house, basically. I don't want to explain too much more. <laughs> okay. But ideally, like we'll be trying to sell that within the next not too long amount of time. Um, so hopefully that'll come out into the world sooner or later. So those are like my two main things. I've been trying to be a more like plot-driven writer over the last few years. I did some screenwriting work, especially at like the peak of the pandemic. And that's taught me more about story structure. So I'm also like researching mm. stuff for maybe a detective type of character. I love crime fiction. Well, that sounds interesting. Where can folks go to find out more about you and buy your books, including Black Card? Yeah, my books are, you know, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, Look for Black Card is my most recent novel. uh, And Zero Fate is my first one. That one's a little harder to find, but it's out there in the world in used copies. And I'm Chris L. Terry. So C-H-R-I-S, letter L, T-E-R-R-Y on Instagram and Twitter and, you know, whatever other social media and stuff. I'm not like super big on any of those, but you can find me on there if you need to get hold of me. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Chris, and for being both author and music guru for this episode. Thank you. It's been great talking to you, Christy. You too. I want you to know that I think Black Card is just brilliant, and I still think you rock, even if you don't dig Led Zeppelin. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit, 
to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit Vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.